It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, let's see, what is happening? Oh, yeah, I wanted to update you on this stuff. You probably already know about it. Um, however, um, we have one year from today to update your driver's license to the real ID, the real ID to be compliant with the TSA requirements to update your license to a real ID. All you have to do is update it at the DMV or a third party DMV. And, um, if you want to verify that you are, what do you call it? Compliant. Uh, the one of the ways that you know is because uh, you will have a, um, I think a star is what they're putting on there. Should have a star in the upper portion of your ID. And uh, anyway, good old Homeland Security doing their thing, I guess. Um, Nothing that we can do about it. Uh, it's a pain in the butt. But now, if you don't want to upgrade your ID to a real ID when you travel, you'll need your ID plus your passport or some other government official type ID um, and uh, kind of go from there. Um, so anyway, update your ID to a real ID. And uh, guess, you know, be compliant. Now, if you don't intend on ever traveling, I guess you never have to do it. But, um, you know, who knows? Doesn't hurt to, um, to, to, to get that done. I apologize. I'm like trying to, we're having some tech issues and some like, interacting with my engineer to find out what's going on. Anyway, uh, the real ID is a real thing. So uh, check it out. You can just type in Google real ID uh, or DMV real ID, and you'll find out all about it. Um, anyway, so uh, check it out. That's your little tip for today. Um, uh, on the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, so anyway, we're going to uh, get this party started here shortly as we're um, dealing with, the, like I said, we're having a few little tech issues. So I'm not sure what's going on. But uh, anyway, bear with me, guys, as we uh, muddle through it. Uh, let's see. Uh, here we go. All right. So... Um, anyway, they're, like I said, they're working on that. Hopefully it's not going to be a thing. Um, all right, let's start off with the quote of the day. I, I have, I have ways of making money that you know nothing of John D. Rockefeller. <laughs> uh, 
I Have Ways of Making Money That You Know Nothing Of by John D. Rockefeller. I don't know if that's really a great quote, so I'm going to have to go with another quote. Let's look up another one. Um, let's see. Uh, being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art. Making money is art and working is art and good business is the best art by Andy Warhol. A much better, much better Quote, being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art. Making money is art and working is art and good business is the best art. And I bet you um, somebody like Bill Gates might um, appreciate that. All right. Uh, today I'm being joined by Charlie Gilkey. Charlie Gilkey. Um, Charlie Gilkey is the author, entrepreneur, philosopher, Army veteran and renowned productivity expert, founder of the Productivity Flourishing, uh, yeah, founder of public of predict, productive flourishing. My lips are obviously wearing out. Guilty has guilty has helps helps professional create uh, creatives helps professional creatives leaders change makers take meaningful action on work that matters. His new book is Start Finishing. How to Go From Idea to Done. Charlie Gilkey, welcome to Money for Lunch. Thanks so much for having me, and sorry for whatever technical difficulties we were having. <laughs> yeah, man, hey, that's the great thing about, uh, you know, uh, doing a show like this is whatever can happen will happen. There's not a whole lot we can do about it, but hopefully you and I can hear each other, and, and as long as you and I have a good time, I think everybody else will too, so we're off and running. Um, you know, real quick, as an Army veteran, I want to say thank you uh, for serving our country. Thanks. It's been, you know, one of the best honors of my life. You know, uh, my daughter uh, recently enlisted in the National Guard, and uh, she's like, uh, I don't know, five four, five five, weighs about 110 pounds, and she just came back from boot camp and uh, we, we would always get these funny letters, you know, she was uh, doing her boot camp in, uh, in Missouri. No. Yeah. I think it was Missouri. Leonard. Wood. No, it wasn't. Yeah. Fort Leonard Wood. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, uh, it was, uh, it was uh, fun because first of all, she wasn't allowed to have a phone, which, you know, for, for our kids of our generation, um, is uh, a big deal, and um, and uh, what else? Uh, she would always talk about how rough whatever the drill was, you know. So they would get up like at four o'clock in the morning, and they would have to uh, put on a full pack of gear, which weighs about fifty-five pounds, and they might do uh, a ten-mile hike. And she would talk about this and and how horrible it was. And at the end of the letter, it would be actually it was kind of fun. Uh, really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's um, that's a good summary of a lot of people's uh, military services. It's a lot of really uncomfortable, rough. You know, you you wake up and it's three thirty and it's raining on you and it's cold and you're like, why in the hell am I doing this? <laughs> um, and then it's then at the end of it, you're like, I'm so glad I was here and I'm so glad I got to do that. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's kind of, you know, in my, that's, 
you know, rank, like ratchet up the level of intensity a bit much. But um, that was also my experience of deploying for Operation Iraqi Freedom, right? It was just like, oh, <laughs> why am I here? Why are we going through this? But at the same time, you're there with your buddies. And at the end of it, as you sort of reflect back on the experience and, you know, if you're one of the fortunate ones that came home physically and mentally healthy, you're like, man, that was that was one of the worst times of my life, but it was also one of my best times of my life. Um, at the same time, I'm not willingly signing up to do it again, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, once is enough, and, uh, and so, again, for all our men and women who risk it, uh, risk it all, uh, thank you so much. And, uh, again, you're no exception to that, so I'm glad that you uh, came back okay. And, I'm, and again, uh, I'm glad to, that you served our country, so uh, thank you so much for that. And, so I'm interested in, in, in this. How did you go from, let's say, uh, uh, you know, Army veteran to, uh, you know, renowned productivity expert? Kind of give us the Reader's Digest version. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was not an overnight success. One of those things like you just jump from one to the other. Um, but back in 2007 or so, I was simultaneously completing my Ph.D. in philosophy. And I was, um, I had redeployed and I was in back in the Army National Guard and um, doing a lot of training environment development, or excuse me, training scenario development. And so I was working about three quarter time there. Um, I'd recently bought a house. I was trying to be a good husband, you know, trying to remodel that house at the same time. And I looked at it, Bert, and I was like, it's, it's not coming together. Like, I'm just, I got to get my stuff together. So like a good scholar and a good officer, I'm like, well, I'm clearly not the only person that has this problem. Like, let me go see what other people have figured out. And sort of started reading the greats of, you know, Seven Habits and getting things done and books sort of in that genre. And what I, what I felt at the time was that, on the one hand, the productivity literature seemed to be far too granular and um, didn't really help me with, with the problems I was having. And then the, personal, the self-help sort of personal development literature was – far too visionary, far too like big ideas, you know, values. And that was great. But it's like, what do I do with my schedule today? How do I finish right. this project? And what I noticed is that so much of my success or failure, depending upon my, my ability to successfully complete projects, which is that middle ground between the, you know, task and the big visions of our life. And so I started you know, synthesizing what I had learned from the military, I also started in injecting what I was learning in philosophy because I'm an ethicist and social political uh, social and political philosopher by training. And so it was really like, how do we make these projects matter? How do we how do these projects help us build a life that matters and contribute to our community and leave this planet better than when we found it? Um, and so I started writing about it, and it just grew from there. Um, and you know, I was fortunate that it got picked up by some major places like Lifehacker and Forbes and, and things like that. And so it's just been growing ever since then. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. You know, to me, what I find fascinating about that is that again, here you are really kind of far removed from the whole productivity thing. It's not something that you were focused on, but it came a time in your life where you had to become more efficient, more effective. And, because you had this problem, you kind of became an expert at solving your own problem, and now you can help the rest of us solve this problem because it's a constant thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And, it, you know, the, the problem for me, the frustration point for me 
was how can I move battalions of equipment and hundreds of soldiers and design these, you know, joint, you know, international training experiment or training environments, um, but I can't get the stupid paper done, um, you know, in philosophy. How can I not, how can I do all of that in this 5,000-word essay is kicking my butt? It didn't make sense. But what I learned throughout the process and the exploration is that there's something different about, especially if you're a creative knowledge worker or you're not, which entrepreneurs are part of a segment of, like there's a difference between wrestling with ideas and getting them out there in the world than like say stacking bricks, right? I mean, because at a certain right. point you show up, you stack bricks, you get it done. But there's a different alchemy that has to happen when you're doing, when you're planning, when you're making strategy, when you're writing that marketing paper, when you're in a sales call, when you're doing all the stuff that, you know, that creative knowledge workers do. And so that was really the nut I, I started cracking is how do we apply all of this to creative projects? Because you're absolutely right. That's the problem that I had. And I was like, well, if I have this problem, um, something that's served me well throughout my life is to, like, see, like, if someone else has a problem doing something, I'm likely going to have that same problem. I'm not better than they are. Um, I'm not smarter. I'm not more resourceful. I'm just like, so that person fell in that hole, and I'm walking down the same path. I'm going to fall in that hole unless I do something to avoid that. Um, but I was able right. to reflect that back and say, you know what, I other people have the same problem, too. And I started writing Productive Flourishing for largely academics, and it had two other really crappy names before it ended up with Productive Flourishing. Um, but what happened is, is, is entrepreneurs and creative knowledge workers actually picked up on it. It was like, oh, this is the sauce. And I was like, who are you? I, I mean, because nowhere in, in my trajectory of my career was like, oh, I'm going to come out and be a business consultant and be a productivity expert. That was not the plan, <laughs> you know? Um, and as I was in that point of canvassing my options, you know, completing, you know, um, looking at the fact that, you know, the academic life was not going to be the full enough life for me and also being in the military was not going to be a full enough life into me. There's this really like beautiful nexus where it made sense to step into this life that I live now because I get to play with all of the toys and didn't have to hide some half the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's, I think what's, what's, uh, interesting to me and i got to ask you this is what drew you towards the field of philosophy ah that's an interesting question so <laughs> i've been reading philosophy since i was 12 or 13 okay um and so when i ended up in college it was in some ways it was my deliberate um, attempt to not have to choose just one field of study, um, mm. because as a philosopher, you get to look across a bright, you get to look across a broad field of study. Whether you're talking about aesthetics, whether you're talking about the philosophy of science, whether you're talking about, um, you know, philosophy of law, like you got to really explore a lot without being canvas and be like, you know, I'm I'm an English major, you know, or I'm an right. engineer. And so um, it started off as like not wanting to choose and I was really good at it and I just loved it. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> if all of those things are true and there's a way to build a career off of doing this thing I love, why not? Um, yeah. And, and so it kind of it took up there. But to be clear, like I took a lot of classes. I was, on, I was there on the fellowship. So I figured out very early that um, they would pay for anything 
over 15 hours as long as I took at least 15 hours. And so most of my semesters I was taking 21, 24 hours a semester because I was getting other majors and learning other stuff. And so I was like, I had backup plans, but it turned out that um, I didn't need them, um, but I was super appreciative of that. So, yeah, it's just one of those things where no matter, I think, where I walk in this life, that will always be a part of the way I see the world. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so, again, uh, the book is um, Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done, and uh, available at Amazon. Or I'm also going to put a link here in the show notes uh, so you can grab the book. Uh, and it's amazing to me because I always tell people ideas are a dime a dozen. I mean, people come up with great ideas all the time, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's getting those ideas from your head, you know, or from the paper to execution, right? I mean, getting things done is is it. I mean, you know, if you're not getting things done, then you're you're going to be immediately replaced. Absolutely. And that's, it seems simple, um, like a simple statement, but it's actually quite profound. Like we don't do ideas. We do projects. We don't do mm. ideas. We do projects. And so you're absolutely true. Like we make the mistake of thinking like, oh, I've got this great idea. I've got this great idea. But like, great. You've got, you know, nothing in a way, right? We as human right. beings, um, you know, we can hold a practical infinity of ideas, but the idea is free. The impact that costs money, or that costs you know you got to invest in that. You got to um, put some skin in the game to make that happen. And so, so many people get an idea. They'll watch the TED talk. They'll listen to the podcast. They'll read the book. They'll watch TV or whatever they get their ideas from. And then, unfortunately, too many people apply a little bit of commitment juice to that. Like, oh, I got to do something, right? Um, and they don't work through the process of actually converting it into a project with goals and timelines and plans and getting it on your schedule. And then going through the rough parts about it, because, you know, the thing, Bert, is one of the reasons ideas are, I mean, they're their own thing, but ideas aren't hard. The execution almost always is, um, because it never looks like what you thought it was going to look like. It's, you know, it always takes longer than you think it's going to take. Um, and the more and it, the more an idea matters, the more you're going to thrash with it. And thrashing is just the term I have for that meta work, that sort of flailing, that quote-unquote research that you yeah. do for an idea where you're not actually moving it forward. Um, and so think about it, Bert, like none of us, well, few of us, I should say, thrash when it's time to do the dishes or to take the trash out. Like we either do it or we don't, we might be frustrated, but it's not a mini existential crisis. Right. But when it starts, when we start thinking about starting a nonprofit or starting a business or writing a book or in my language, you know, anything that takes time, energy and attention is a project. So, that means getting married is a project or getting divorced or getting the kids off the couch, you know, um, or getting them, you know, finally lost out in the world. All of those things tie into deep nested ideas about our identity and who we are. And so if we fail, if we try some of those, if we try to convert some of those ideas into projects and it don't work out, what does it say about us? And the second point is that a lot of people don't think about enough is so many of us have created no-win scenarios for ourselves, and it's not failure that we're really scared of. It's success. If we are successful with some of these ideas, if we're successful with that new business, 
um, we may have to change our relationships with people or we tell ourselves like being successful in business means I can't be the type of parent that I want to be or I can't be the type of partner that I want to be. And they always, always have the structure of if I am successful with this, I have to give up or lose this thing that I value. That's always the no-win scenario that we create for ourselves. And so the more audacious, the more audacious, the more authentic, the more impactful that idea is, the more likely it is that we're going to create a no-win scenario that then prevents us from doing it. Um, because we don't want to fail. No human wants to fail. But we also don't want to succeed and wreck our relationships or succeed and sell out or succeed and then wonder how we're going to you know, live up to the standard we've created ourselves or succeed at the cost of our body. Um, and yeah. so when you start looking at it, that's why I think so many people, when it comes to the ideas that really, really matter, they're stuck because of the no-win scenarios and because of all the stories they have about it. You know, it's interesting. So I think the first, you know, value bomb or takeaway that I get from this conversation, the, my first aha is we don't do ideas, we do projects. I love that. Everything is broken down to a project. And, and then uh, I like this other thing that you're talking about, this no-win scenario that we sometimes create for ourselves. Yeah, you know what? If, if I lose the weight, then everybody will always expect me to be at that standard. Back to what you were saying, we create this new standard for ourselves, right? If, if, I, mm-hmm. you know, if I do this, then it, might, it may hurt this, right? Uh, you know, sometimes, and I've said that myself, sometimes you do have to get rid of friends, not get rid of them completely, but you have to, you know, maybe not hang around them so much if, you, if you're going to want to achieve something else. You, you know, when, when uh, and I think every, every person can relate to this, when you are focused on final exams, you are focused on that project and you cut out just about everybody you can out of your life unless they can contribute to you getting a, uh, a, a leg up on that final exam. And sometimes we have to do this for a short period of time, such as, again, cramming for an exam, or we have to do it for an extended period of time. I know people who uh, they got into, uh, what do you call it, postgraduate schools and because the workload was so severe, they, again, they cut out a lot of people. They would just, you know, they would go from school to home and, and you know, do whatever they could at the house. And, and they were full-time students. And some of, these, and some of my friends were, were married. And all they had time for was, you know, school, family, church, school, family, church kind of a thing. And, uh, and then once they graduated and, you know, they, whatever, they were done with that three-year project, whatever it was, four-year project, then they kind of uh, regrouped and said, hey, I'm, I'm on the other side of this now, and I can connect with you. My point being is sometimes you do have to cut, you know, you do have to sacrifice some things. Uh, you know, somebody said it to me, sometimes you got to let go of what's good to go after what's better. And, mm-hmm. that's, and that's scary for a lot of people. Yeah, it's really scary. It's really scary. And what I want to say on that one is that I think there are ways that you can have, you can include people in your life in ways, but it's not, it's not that same level of intensity. So to go to some of your um, examples, like when you're not in final exam mode, you might be hanging out with friends. You might be doing whatever you do with those friends, 
And then when you're in focus mode, if, you know, they get a text or they get an email, you know, you're, they know you're alive, but you're not, you're not able to hang out in that same way. And um, I think it's good for us to develop friendships and relationships with people where when it's time for us to focus on the thing at hand, that our friends can support that and say, you know what, they're going through that thing. Because think about it this way. It's one of those oddities, but like, if you are in the place where you have an elder parent that, you know, gets diagnosed with cancer or dementia or something, you need to, you need to move back somewhere. You need to spend, you know, two or three months helping them get into um, whatever living situation they need to. No one's like, Hey man, what happened to you? Why are you doing that? Like everyone understands that's what you do. Or if you have a new kid, and you need that time off, people are like, okay, that, they're just focused on that thing. But unfortunately, I think when it's some of our, what I call best work, when it's that work that's really, you know, going to make yourself and the world better at the same time, and that, you know, that part of ourselves that we want to let out, when we, like, focus on that, people are like, hey, man, what's happened? That's not fair. Where are you? And I'm like, I've always been like, why is it that we're willing to make space for people doing certain types of work? But when they're doing other types of work, we get judgy or we get critical or we get demanding about that, right? Um, because yeah. there's just certain, certain things, certain things we'll make room for. But what we end up telling ourselves in a way is when it comes to kids, when it comes to elders, when it comes to what seems to be, quote, unquote, purely altruistic projects where you're taking care of other people, everybody will back up and say, okay, you're focused on that. It's good. But what we learn and sort of – um, deeply embed in us is when we're focusing on our own thing that that's selfish, that that's, you know, um, somehow wrong, that we can't say, you know what, for the next six months, I'm writing a book. It's the same six months that it might be that if you were having a kid or if you were taking care of a parent or if you were, you know, in other situations or going on a military deployment, like same sort of things where people will make space for you. But in those situations, we feel like they won't. Um, but it turns out, though, this is the interesting thing, Bert. It turns out when you get intentional about what you're doing and you communicate its importance and how it ties into your values, people will actually make that space for you. They do understand it, but we have to take it upon ourselves to communicate that and have the courage and set up some boundaries that make that work um, because otherwise people don't know what we're doing. And so it's one of those things. It's like if you've ever been in a relationship, where you've gotten in an argument where your partner like expected you to know something that they were thinking without them telling you that. Um, yeah. And then you're in sort of like, you should, you should just know, right. I'm not going to say who, like who ends up on that end of the spectrum, but I think we've all been in those situations where that partner has been like, you should just know by now. It's like, how am I supposed to know? I'm not a mind reader. That same sort of thing can happen in our social networks. Cause we're just like, they should just know that we want to start this business or write this book or start this nonprofit or, you know, start this community project or run for office. They should just know and support me, but never along the way have we said, this is what I'm doing. This is where it matters, or this is why it matters. This is how I'm going to go about doing this. And here's the support I need right now. Um, And so there's this fundamental way in which we set up relationships such that we get the very thing we don't want, which is, you know, shame and judgment and it can feel like ostracism because we haven't actually um, pointed the ship where we want it to go and told the, and told the team where we're going with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that is so true. That, that is amazing. Both of those scenarios where we judge people according to their circumstance. Oh, he's got, you know, it's, 
he's got to take care of the parents. Well, that's understandable. Let's be cool. Uh, and then, of course, maybe for another scenario, that might be just as important to that individual. We judge them a little differently. It's, it's uh, interesting. Uh, humans, man, we're a mess. Um, so real quick, I want to plug the book out one more time here. Uh, the book is called Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done, available at Amazon. Of course, I'm going to put links here in the show notes. Um, all right, so let me ask you this. What should I do if I'm a big picture thinker who gets stuck when I have to think more granular? You know, that's a really great question. So I'll, I'll give three sort of tips here. One get in conversation with someone who does think granular that you like um, because mm. they will, you'll naturally mirror off of them and you won't have to do it alone. Two, I think visionary thinkers get stuck because they're trying to think in the, they're trying to think in different scales of time at the same time and their brains go haywire. So real quick on this one, try to think listener and Bert, like think about the size of an ant and the size of the Milky Way galaxy at the same time. Right. Yeah. Super hard to do. You probably can't. Right. Do it, right. Right. When we try to think about a day and a year in that same way. It's making that same problem. Our brains just can't do it. And so visionaries oftentimes have this ability to slip between scales of time. Um, and so what they have to do, what my suggestion would be thinking like, okay, I'm going to think about year size goals. I'm going to think about year size plans. Okay. Now I'm just going to think about month size plans and I'm not going to slide back and forth between the two, because that's, I think, where they go haywire. Um, and the third thing is always, um, for, vision, for big picture thinkers, um, the bigger the piece of paper, the bigger the whiteboard, the better, because you're going to need to mind map those out um, and not try to look at all those levels of detail, all the ideas all at once, which I think is one ends up happening to big picture thinkers, is it's, um, it's now and later, it's greater and lower, at the same time in the, in the brain's just short circuit. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in the book, you recommend using five, the, the five projects rule uh, to prioritize uh, time and projects. Talk about these five rules real quick, these five projects real quick. All right. Yeah. So the longer way of saying that is no more than five active projects per time perspective. Now I've already talked about the time perspective piece, so we don't, we don't have to go too much into that. Um, the basic insight is I think we all intuitively know the difference between a month sized project and say a quarter sized project. Just like we know the, the intuitive difference between a week sized project and a month sized project. That's super helpful. Like, and we don't have to quibble about whether it's 21 hours or 23 hours or anything crazy like that. We just kind of have a feeling for that. So that means that when you're thinking about doing your weekly planning, only think about committing to week-sized projects and break those projects down into week-sized chunks and then decide upon, among those week-sized projects which are going to be the most important, which are going to be those big rocks, to go back to that well, well-worn metaphor, right, the big rocks that you put in the jar that you're right. going to focus on because if you don't, you're going to focus on 18 things or you're going to commit to 18 things and do three. Um, and so – it's just a process by having you focus on five. And the other part is active projects, like all the projects that you're thinking about, that you're carrying, that you stuffed in that closet. You don't need to think about those all the time. You're only going to do three to five projects. And I say that based upon the countless interviews I've done and the research that I've done. When you really get down to it, 
at any given time slice, whether it's a day, whether it's a week, whether it's a quarter, whether it's a year, really high-performing people don't do more than three to five significant projects at that time scale, right? right. And so if you already know that you're not going to get more than that done, why carry them? It's like carrying a backpack, going back to, to your daughter. It's like carrying a rucksack that's 50, that has 55 pounds of stuff knowing that you'll only ever use and go through 20 pounds of it. What's that 35 pounds extra doing? Except for weighing you down and making you feel bad. That's exactly what we do with projects in that we commit to 17, we complete three. We commit to 22, we complete three. We commit to 15, <laughs> we complete three. Why, why, do we, why don't we just commit to three? We know that's what we're going to do, right, yeah, at a certain yeah. point. Um, and so that's what the five projects rule helps people do. It's a, it's a great rule, rule for triaging which projects you're going to do, prioritizing them and planning them because it's a whole heck of a lot easier to look at your week and say, okay, with these five projects that I'm chosen, I've chosen, where can I make this happen in my current schedule as opposed to looking at that sort of wishful thinking of trying to cram 20 units of stuff into a 10-unit bag. Like, let's stop that, please. It's, it's not useful. Um, and so it just pulls it down to that human scale, but the, the downside of it and as I'm sure you know and, and, and our listener knows, is that means that you have to let go of all those other projects that you want to do, that you you know, said you've got some commitment juice, the wishful thinking you have about that, and just say, nope, these are the things that matter most. These are the ones that at the end of the week, month, quarter, or year, I can say, man, I'm so glad I did those and that those got done. Those are the types of projects because it turns out a lot of the projects that we commit to, Bert, a week later, a month later, a quarter later, they fundamentally will not matter. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And 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 uh, I, I'm a big believer, and I say this all the time that 95% of the stuff around us doesn't matter, including the projects, including all this other stuff. Um, you know, we. Sometimes we overcommit to the wrong things and we undercommit to the right things. And it, it, it's just, uh, you know, just it's that human nature and you got to get better at, you know, I guess knowing yourself and, 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 and taking on some of these projects. It's just sometimes it's good to say no. Yeah. It's good to say no, and sometimes the best way to finish a project is to just drop it midstream because projects are both, are both bridges and mirrors. They're bridges because they build the future and they build the life that you want to live, right? And so if yes. you're working on a project that's not building the life and the work that you want to live and do, stop, right? Why are you going to build a bridge that goes nowhere, right? Just stop it, right? And that's super hard. I, I understand emotionally that's hard, but it makes no sense to spend the next three months building a bridge that takes you somewhere you don't want to go because you've then displaced building the bridge that takes you where you want to go. Now, the mirrors, because they mirror what's going on, going on internally for you, like your emotions, your headspace around that particular thing, your fears, your head trash, also, you know, everything else that's going on for you. Um, that's the internal view, but they also are a mirror for what's going on externally. So if you commit to um, a best work project, one of the first things that happens is people realize they don't have space in their schedule for it. That's really useful information. It's mirroring what's happened in your world. What are you going to do about that? Right? How are you going to change that? How are you going to make it work? Is it worth doing? 
And so, absolutely. And the other thing I want to ta- t- touch in on here is that so a lot of people, I won't say you, Bert, because you may be cooler than that, but a lot <laughs> of people get super frustrated because they're getting lapped by some other person that's focused on focused on something, right? And the other person in the mind is like, they're not as smart. They don't have such a – their idea is not as good. You know, you would have done it different. You would have done it better. But in all that time that you're, one, watching them, and two, sort of navel-gazing and thrashing with your project, they're just getting it done. And when you really look at those folks, they're committing you – know, they're completing one or three things a year. You know, for instance, and it might be that book, it could be that business, it could be that new hire, whatever it is, and we get so frustrated that they're just brute forcing it and getting it done by, by you know, focusing. But right. we're really not frustrated with them. We're frustrated with ourselves because we know that if we did that same thing, we would be putting the points on the board. Um, but because we're sitting on the bench still trying to figure out what game we want to play, we're not scoring anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I've learned from some of the high achievers I've been around is the large majority of them have very, uh, are are very humble people. They they might have big egos because they're used to doing things on a big scale and and they've accomplished some stuff, but their ego isn't on public display, right? They don't walk into a room and say, Hey, you know, I'm cool, you know, and, uh, you know, whatever they, they are very, they're humble and they're always looking to learn. And uh, they're very respectful of people around them. And I found that to be very interesting. I, uh, you know, I bring this up because, there are a lot of people out there who says, man, I don't know how so-and-so is doing this or that. I'm smarter than they are. Um, um, you know, whatever the, the adjective is, right. I'm smarter, I'm faster, I'm whatever. But this person's always doing this and that. And, and, and of course they try to justify it. Oh, he's kissing the, 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 the boss's butt or she's kissing the boss's butt or, or whatever. Uh, and they hate to look at themselves and realize, you know what? I'm just not doing it. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent committed or I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not playing at that level. And that is one of the hardest things that we as humans have to admit. Uh, we're not playing at that same level or you would be getting those same results. And I always tell people if somebody that's supposedly not as good as you is getting the results you want, then it's, you know, you better humble yourself and take a look. You got to look at yourself and realize that it's you. It's not them. It's you. Yeah, I talk about that in the book, right? And there, there are different levels of success that we can choose, um, like small, moderate, and epic, or extreme if you're not a millennial, right? And unfortunately, what so many people want is they want the epic success but they're not willing to put in the epic effort it takes to get it, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. or they want the moderate success, but they're not really, you know, going to put in the moderate success. Now, there's a gift here because you can go into a project and you can pick what level of success you want to go after and define the project based upon that. 
Um, for instance, I made a big mistake when I was um, working on completing my PhD is that I absolutely, I, I slid into thinking that it had to be, you know, this game changing dissertation that set me up for all the great schools and blah, blah, blah. When really <laughs> later on, after I struggled with it long enough, I figured out that actually the whole point of a dissertation is to prove that you can create a scholarly work. I was like, well, well crap, why didn't someone tell me that four years ago? Right? It would make my life a lot easier. <laughs> Right, if that's all it took, right? And so I was just like, okay, well, and at that point, I was no longer in academia, so I didn't need the big job. I, you know, the odds of a, of a uh, non-professional philosopher getting placed in the journals are not great, right? So whatever I did at that point, like, it would be incredibly hard to have that epic success, but it didn't power my life. It wasn't the bridge that I needed anymore. And that's just an example of what we could do. But to your point, Bert, it's like that's the thing that we do. It's like we look at the LeBron James of our industry, or if you're from California, the Steph Curry, right? But anyway, we, we look at the LeBron James of our industry, and we're like, they're just, like, winning it, they're doing it. And, you know, they've got either the talent that I don't, which we don't want to say, but we sometimes believe, or they got lucky. But it's like, have you looked at how hard they work to get where they are, right? And if you're not willing to do the work, maybe let go of having the outcomes, right? Pick the level of outcome that matches the amount of work that you're willing to put in. And therefore, when you get that level of outcome, you put those, that many points on the board, and you're like, oh, man, I only got this many points. Well, you chose from the beginning that that was the type of game you were playing and how much effort you were going to put in there. So based upon that, that's, a, you know, that's good. That's great. But don't be in the place where you're like half working on something and half committing something and then looking at someone who's put all in and then being frustrated because they get the results from being all in and you get the results from being half in. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things that Tony Robbins talked about is uh, the unfairness of life. And he says, life is unfair for a specific reason. He says, uh, he, he says I'm, I'm not sure what the reason is, but that's the way life is. It's unfair. And he says, for example... If, if, you, if you put in poor effort, you don't get poor results. You typically get no results. If, mm-hmm. you, put in, if you put in good effort, you don't get good results. You, 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 know, you, you get less than good results, maybe even poor results because you're just you – know, it's a momentum game. And so if you're, if you're putting in you – know, just you're doing outstanding work and you're just on it 24-7, you may not get – outstanding results, but you're going to be anywhere. You're going to be in that good area. Right. And he says, that's Mm -hmm. just the way it is. And and so what we don't see is we don't see the people who have done the good and outstanding and the excellent work for years after years, after years, we just see the results they're getting now for the efforts they put that they, that they put in over time. Right. That the LeBron James didn't become LeBron James overnight. I mean, that's what it looks like. But we didn't see, you know, we didn't see the hours of pain and agony that he put into his practice. We, do, we don't know a lot about his, his upbringing, his, his, you know, the rejection, the, the shortcomings he had to overcome. We just look at LeBron James and say, dog, come on, I want, you know, I can do that. No, you know, and maybe you can if you have, you know, as you mentioned, some of the talent and you're willing to put in some of the work or all of the work. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think people – so going – I'm going to tie this back into the five projects. Well, what, what people end up resisting is they're saying there's no way I'll get where I want to go in life by just committing to that. Well, think about it. It's that slice of time. If you complete five important, meaningful, um, change-making projects a year for five years, you will transform your life. If you do it for yeah. three years, you will transform your life, right? They look at just that point in time and say, I can't do it in the one year. I can't get there. But when you look at whoever the LeBron James of your industry is, what you're probably going to see is exactly to your point, Bert, is every year they've been getting stuff done. They've been getting these important projects done. They may not have won the championship, and I'm using sports metaphors because, hey, it's sure. season, but also most of us get it, right? They may not have won the championship every time, but every season they were playing, they were in the playoffs, right? They were in the game, right? Yes. They were contenders. There's a certain amount of time where like, if you are that person that every time you show up, people know that you're going to be a contender and that you, if they don't watch, you might be, win the championship. That gives that sort of thing. That gives that sort of quiet humility that you were talking about in that the super successful people um, kind of follow that Theodore Roosevelt quote of speaking softly and carrying a big stick. They carry a really yeah. stick when they walk in a room, but they don't have to swing it, right? Everyone knows they got the stick, right, because of That's everything it. else they've done in the background, right? And Absolutely. So they don't have to be like, I'm such and such. I'm such and such. Everyone knows. Um, they've done less talking and more working. Man, that's it. That, that is really what it's all about. The book, again, is called Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done. The author is Charlie Gilkey. And the book is available at Amazon. Charlie, thank you so much for stopping by. It's been a pleasure. Looking forward to having you back again, my friend. Thanks, Bert. It's been a great conversation. All right. Good stuff there from Charlie Gilkey, uh, Army veteran, renowned productivity expert. And you can check him out at productivityflourishing.com. You can check out his book, Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done. As always, my friends, let's share this episode with everyone we know. Let's help as many people become more productive to get more stuff done. Remember, you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com.